Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Some time ago, a friend of mine handed me a flyer for a now defunct website, and I'm glad that the website has gone defunct, as you'll soon understand. But the flyer said, calling all Christians, visit BibleDecoded.com. Your faith will be strengthened beyond belief. Find out the exact date of Armageddon. Find out the dates when each of the four horsemen of the apocalypse start to ride. Find out the exact date of Adam's sin and Eve's creation. The very day that Adam first slept with Eve. Like, what's that got to do with anything? Find out the true meaning of 666. The whole timetable for the resurrection of mankind and in the kingdom of God, the dates for the first and second comings of the Christ. Discover what God has in store for us. Please share this good news with others. This code was cracked in 1992, but is now being made known for the first time. May God bless you, and thanks for your interest. Now, this was given to me by a colleague at a church that I previously served, and he had written in the margin, next sermon series? I don't think so. Uh, it's true that people have all kinds of interest in end times things, uh, events of the end times, and uh, they're always wondering, especially when the times they're living in seem to be spinning out of control, could this be it? Are we living in the end times? And certainly the events of the last 18 months or so have many of us asking, you know, whether this is it, you know, with COVID still raging and racial tensions running high with gun violence out of control in the city streets, with uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and, and Haiti being hit by earthquake and, and then um, the, the hurricane. You just have to wonder, you know, who can help but wonder if we're approaching the end? And certainly as pastors, one of the questions we get most asked frequently is about the end times. You know, what, what will be the sequence of events leading up to the end times and how will we know that we're in them? Well, sometimes I can take people straight to the Bible to answer the questions they have. And sometimes I have to say, you know what, the scriptures don't clearly address the question you're asking. So sometimes I can give crisp, clear answers, and other times I kind of feel like I'm stumbling around. And the older I get, the more inclined I am to think that probably none of, us is, it, none of it's going to go down quite the way any of us think. It didn't happen the way anybody thought it would the first time. I'm sure that we're going to be surprised by some things the next time around. There's probably more I don't understand about Bible prophecy than I do, and you're saying, oh, well, then what good are you to me, Pastor? That's what I really want to know. <laughs> well, the, the cool thing is that I get to take us to a passage of Scripture today where Jesus himself is asked the question about the last days. And today we get to listen to what he himself has to say on this fascinating subject It happened the Wednesday of Holy Week, so this is only two days before Jesus' crucifixion. 
And it was when Jesus and his followers were leaving the temple to go out of the city to the place where they would be staying overnight in Bethany. And as they were leaving the temple complex, one of his disciples makes this comment in Mark chapter 13 and verse 1, where it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, the temple of the time was truly magnificent. Herod the Great was known for his building projects, and he had invested heavily in the rebuilding and the renovation of the temple, and work had been going on now for over 40 years. It was known for its beautiful, huge, hand-polished stones. It was uh, so large, the temple took up one-sixth of the total landmass of Jerusalem. It was so beautiful that it was regarded as one of the seven architectural wonders of the ancient world. And so it's no wonder that one of Jesus' disciples would, would remark as they're leaving the place, wow, look at this place, isn't it beautiful? Look at these beautiful stones, look at these beautiful buildings. What is surprising, however, is how Jesus responds to him in verse 2, where it says, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, that's kind of disturbing. Uh, that would be kind of like standing in awe looking up into the great rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and, and remarking on, on the amazing architecture, the beauty of it all, and have someone you trust come up to you and say, you see all this? Don't be too impressed. It's all coming down. It's going to be a pile of rubble very soon. And that would spark all kinds of questions in your mind, wouldn't it? You'd want to know, well, when's this going to happen? Who's going to do such a thing? How will we know it's about to happen? And, and certainly with Jesus' prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed in that fashion, all of those kinds of questions are spinning in the minds of Jesus' disciples as they leave Jerusalem and they climb the Mount of Olives. They're going out to Bethany just over the top of the Mount of Olives where they'll stay the night again. And as they climb the Mount of Olives, they reach the top and they take a little break and look back at the city. Now this is a view that almost any tourist to Jerusalem will identify with. How many of you have been to Israel and have been to Jerusalem? Yeah, okay, so you've been to the top of the Mount of Olives, right? And you look back at the city and there's the Dome of the Rock and the whole city of Jerusalem laid out before you. That's the view that they have in front of them, only it's the temple complex right there in front of them in all of its glory and the city of Jerusalem around it. And it's there that some of Jesus' disciples ask him the question. Beginning in verse 3, it says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, the four brothers, two sets of brothers, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, what follows is called the Olivet Discourse, obviously because Jesus gives it sitting atop the Mount of Olives. And what he gives here is he's going to tell them what they should expect as history unfolds and rushes to its climax. But Jesus is not just interested in filling their heads with, with ideas and knowledge and, and a sequence of events leading up to the end. This passage is filled with instruction about how to live in anticipation of what is to come, what to do, but even more importantly, what not to do. Because Jesus anticipates that there will be some mistakes and blunders that people are going to make reacting to what is to come. 
And Jesus wants them to be well-informed and not to make those mistakes, assuming that they're in the end days. And so this passage follows a pattern. In this passage, Jesus is going to say, okay, here's what you need to expect, and now here's how you need to respond to those events. Or more precisely, here's how you need not to respond to those events. When this happens, don't make this mistake. When this happens, avoid this blunder. So Jesus is showing us here that having the right expectations can help us prevent costly blunders. If we know what to expect about the times that are to come, it will help us avoid some costly mistakes as history rushes to its climax. So I want you to watch now as Jesus lays out four expectations that we should have about the future, and for each one, he warns us about a blunder that we should avoid. Here's the first one. Expect false Christs, but don't be led astray. Expect false Christs, but don't be led astray. Jesus says to them in verse five, and it says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, one of the most important expectations about the end of days is that Jesus is coming again, right? Why? Because Jesus himself said he would come back. In fact, it's 44 days from the time that they're having this conversation on the top of the Mount of Olives that Jesus will ascend from the Mount of Olives and go into heaven, and the angel will say to the disciples who are watching all this, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? Don't you know that the same Jesus who has gone into heaven will come again in the same way you've seen him go? So the expectation of the church has always been that Jesus is coming back. And and with that expectation that Jesus is coming back, there are going to be many who will try to take advantage of that, imposters who will offer themselves as that one who is the Christ returned from heaven. There will be many who will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Jesus says, don't fall for it. They're going to come around saying, I'm back, follow me. But if you follow them, you'll be led astray. I did a quick check of Wikipedia and typed in false Christs, and a list of 28 names came up just for the 20th century alone. Another eight came, in, came up for the 21st century already. But there have been many, many people down through the years who have claimed to be the Christ, you know, who's come back, claiming to be Jesus, returned in the flesh. And asking people to follow them. And some of them have gained considerable followings. Uh, consider, for instance, Sung Young Moon of the Unification Church. Or Jim Jones of the People's Temple. Even Charles Manson of Helter Skelter fame. He, he gained his following by claiming to be the Christ. And he had persuaded some that he was the Messiah. The second coming. David Koresh of the Branch Davidian cult. And note that in many of these cases, the followers of these imposters ended up either dead or in jail. So it didn't turn out too well for many of them. Jesus says, there are going to be a lot of people coming around claiming, I am he, Uh, follow me, they're going to come in my name. Don't be led astray, Jesus says. Don't make the blunder that many will make. Don't fall for their claims or be sucked in by their charismatic personalities. Don't be led astray by them. Now, what Jesus doesn't say here, but what he makes clear later in this same passage is that when Jesus himself comes back, you won't have to wonder whether it's really him. 
Because when Jesus comes back, there's going to be no doubt about it. Yeah, Jesus is going to say later in this chapter that when I come back, I'll come back in, in great power and glory. Expect false Christs, Jesus tells his disciples, but don't be led astray. Here's expectation number two he wants them to have about history as it unfolds. Expect catastrophes, but don't be alarmed. Expect catastrophes, but don't be alarmed. Now, I'm old enough to know what happens every time a catastrophic event happens or whenever it looks like war is imminent, when hurricanes devastates and earthquakes shake and pandemics break out or nations seem ready to go to war, we can't help but wonder if this is a sign that we're in the last times because didn't Jesus say there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines in various places? This must be it. Well, that's uh, hugely taking Jesus out of context because look what he says here. What he actually says is this, verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is what? Not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So what Jesus actually says is, look, as history unfolds, you need to expect that there are going to be wars, there are going to be rumors of wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, and yes, pandemics, all kinds of catastrophes as, as history rolls along, but don't be alarmed. That doesn't mean the end is upon us. All that kind of stuff is going to happen, but the end could still be a long way off. A woman may be having some twinges of discomfort, but that doesn't mean the baby's coming today. A birth pain here or there doesn't mean it's time to run to the hospital. Now, many of us have been asking whether COVID means that we're in the last times. And a lot of us are saying, I can't remember a time when it's ever been this crazy. Things are so out of control, this must be the end. Well, I'm sure my grandfather must have wondered the same thing. When right at the end of World War I, he lost his father to the Spanish flu, a pandemic that was 10 times worse than COVID is. And then in his lifetime came the Great Depression, and then World War II, and then the turbulent 60s, and the Red Scare of the Cold War era. And then since my grandfather passed, we've had 9-11 and, and the Gulf War. And during the Gulf War, there's a prominent Dallas seminary professor who made a, had a lot of us wondering if Saddam Hussein was the, the new Nebuchadnezzar and his regime was the rise of Babylon, a sure sign that we're in the end times. I guess what I'm saying is I've been around the block enough times to know that when catastrophes happen, our default as Christians is to say, things are so crazy, this must be the end. And then when something like COVID happens and people say, is this it? My response is, well, maybe, but probably not. Jesus said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this, Jesus said. So don't be alarmed. Amen. Don't make that blunder of assuming that just because times are bad that the end must be upon us. Well, why is that so important? Well, for one thing, it can hurt our credibility. Like the boy who cried wolf, if Christians are always worked up that the end is upon us, when it really isn't, it makes us look bad, doesn't it? Have you ever heard of William Miller? William Miller was a camp preacher back in the 1800s. 
He held camp meetings all over the place, and, and he was persuaded by the signs of the times that Jesus was coming back on October 23rd, 1844. Maybe a million people heard him preach in his camp meetings, and it's believed that up to 100,000 people across the country were persuaded by Miller, and thousands of them came to be known as Millerites, who went so far as to quit their jobs and sell their earthly possessions to prepare for Jesus' return. And it's reported by many sources that the Millerites, dressed in white robes, and on October 23, 1844, many of them climbed mountains and hilltops and even up on the roof of their house so that they could be closer to heaven to greet Jesus when he came back. And then October 24th came along, and they all felt pretty foolish. And if you think that people back then were much more naive than people today, well, don't forget Harold Camping of Family Radio who predicted that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011 at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. He had it right down to the hour. Some followers of camping gave up their jobs and sold their homes. They stopped investing in their children's college funds and spent large sums of money helping to promote camping's claims. And because of the international reach of family radio, there were Christians around the world who were worked up about, about Jesus coming back. There was one instant in, in Vietnam where 5,000 ethnic Hmong people gathered at a remote town in May of that year to wait together for Jesus' return. The police thought these people are crazy and they arrested them all. Now it just so happened that Saturday, May 21st, 2011 was the day that many of us were gathered right here in the Bayside Auditorium for a question and answer session with a guy who was candidating to become the next pastor of Bayside Chapel. And I think we gathered like four o'clock in the afternoon and the questions went on and on and on. And finally, somebody said, what do you think about Harold Camping's prediction? And I looked at the clock in the back of the room and I said, well, look, it's 6.20, I guess he was wrong. <laughs> Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These things have to take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus said, you're going to hear all kinds of disturbing news and wonder if this means the end has come. Don't be alarmed. Think of all that distress as the beginning of birth pains. So how should we live? Well, you don't go around saying the sky is falling. We don't go around crying wolf. We do live with an expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment because he said he, that's the way we should live. And so we live every moment as if Jesus could return in the next, and then we don't have to worry about whether he's coming today or tomorrow or, or 100 years from now. Don't be alarmed. Do be expectant. And live as if Jesus could come at any moment. Now, when Jesus' followers asked how they could know that the end was upon them, what the sign would be, all these things, Jesus gave them instructions about how they should live as history unfolds and what blunders to avoid. And so he tells them first, expect false Christs, but don't be led astray. Expect catastrophes, but don't be alarmed. And thirdly, he says, expect persecution, but don't be anxious. Expect persecution, but don't be anxious. Now, this is important for us to hear because here in America, as followers of Jesus, we're finding it that, that we're increasingly out of step with our culture. 
and to go on holding to the moral convictions the church has held for 2,000 years is now regarded as being hateful and bigoted and on the wrong side of history. And so people don't like good Christian folks so much anymore. Even if you're not shoving your morals down somebody else's throat, they resent the fact that you have those morals and that you live by them because somehow they feel indicted by that. And so people don't like good Christian folks anymore. And we're inclined to cry, we're being persecuted. This must be a sign of the end. But Jesus says, no, this is normal. This is just what you should expect. But don't be anxious about it. Don't be all uptight living in fear of persecution. If and when it happens, I'll give you what you need to endure it and and to be faithful to preach the gospel. He says in verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the great tribulation here. He's just talking about normal times of trouble and persecution. So he's not dealing here with whether his followers will go through the great tribulation. Uh, Long before any of that happens, there will be plenty of trouble that believers will experience. In fact, all the while the church is carrying out its mission to make disciples of every nation, there will be persecution, he's saying, expect it. He says in verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached, it must be proclaimed to all nations. And and while that's going on, they're going to persecute you. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, expect there to be trouble, but don't be anxious about it. Don't obsess over it. Why? He says, because I'm going to be there with you in it. And, And when you're called upon to give a defense I'm going to give you the words to say. My spirit will speak through you. It won't be you speaking. It will be my spirit speaking through you. And it won't be easy. In fact, it may get so bad that in some cases your own family members will turn against you. Verse 12, he says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." As history marches on, as the church continues to carry out its mission, as the gospel continues to be preached to the ends of the earth, you should expect persecution. But don't be anxious. Persecution in itself is not a sign of the end. It's, a, it's just part of what Christ's followers should expect as we carry out our mission An Oxford professor by the name of John Lennox wrote a book entitled Against the Flow, and in that book he talks about an encounter he once had with a a Russian Christ follower who spent years in a Siberian prison camp for the crime of teaching his children the Bible. And he, he reports this conversation. Lennox says, he described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened, thinking how little I knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under such circumstances. As if he read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I said something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, much less the blood of somebody else. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us face theoretical situations. 
but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me, exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And then Lennox adds, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. Jesus' disciples are saying, Lord, tell us, when are these things going to happen? What will be the sign that we should look for? And, and, and Jesus says, look, as history unfolds, I want you to expect these things and, and avoid these blunders. Expect false Christ, but don't be led astray. Expect catastrophes, but don't be alarmed. Expect persecution, but don't be anxious. Now, I want you to notice that so far, he hasn't told them anything that they've really asked for, right? They're, they're asking about a sign that the end is upon them. And in essence, he said, look, everybody wants to know about the end. But there's a whole lot more to come before that. So let me tell you what to expect in normal times so you won't, expect, you won't confuse normal times for the end times and so end up blundering your way through them. Then Jesus finally gets around to talking about something distinctive about the end times. This is what to look for. And expectation number four is this. Expect tribulation, but don't stick around. Expect tribulation, and that's your signal not to stick around. Look at what he says in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now remember in verse 4, his disciples had asked, what will be the sign that these things are about to be fulfilled? And here Jesus finally tells them, that the sign they're looking for is the appearance of the abomination that causes desolation standing where he does not belong, namely in the temple sanctuary. Now, it almost seems like Mark is speaking in code here, reporting on what Jesus says. The abomination that causes desolation, why not just tell us who, who this is, who you're talking about? And then he says, let the reader understand. Now, remember, Mark's readers were in Rome. He was, he was writing this for believers in Rome. And the Roman believers were already under scrutiny for any signs of disloyalty to Rome. And so if Mark had come right out and said who was behind the abomination that causes desolation, it could have gotten his readers into trouble. So what he does instead is he says, let the reader understand. And he's pointing them to the Old Testament where Daniel speaks of the abomination that causes desolation. Here's your clue. Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27 where Daniel, 500 years before the time of Christ, wrote this. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now that would be the Romans. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until end. The desolations have been decreed. He, that is this ruler who will come, will confirm a covenant with many, likely the Jewish people, for one seven, probably a period of seven years. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set himself up as an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, this word abomination is a word that speaks of pagan idolatry and its detestable practices. And so the abomination of desolation refers to the presence of an idolatrous person or object so detestable that it causes the, the temple itself to be abandoned and left desolate. The temple is so utterly desecrated by the presence of this one. 
Now, historically, the first fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy occurred uh, on, in 167 BC at the hands of the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who erected an altar uh, to Zeus in the temple courts over the altar of burnt offerings, and he sacrificed a pig on it as an, the ultimate insult to the Jewish people. Now, Jesus' use of the phrase seems to point to two other fulfillments of this prophecy. You know, Old Testament prophecies were kind of like that. The prophet would point to a near event as prophetic of a far future event. In this case, it's, it's two future events. And Jesus seems to be pointing ahead to two more fulfillments of this prophecy of Daniel. And so the near fulfillment to Jesus would have been the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. This is the judgment that comes as a result of Israel's failure, not, not only to recognize Messiah, but the, the leadership's decision to have him put to death. Remember Jesus' parable of the tenants from a few weeks ago? When Jesus told this story about these tenants who, who were given charge of a vineyard and the owner went away and then the owner came, uh, sent his messengers to collect rent and the, uh, the tenants beat up the messengers and then they killed some of the messengers and finally the, the owner said, I'm going to send my son, surely they'll respect my son, but they kill him too. And this was Jesus' way of saying, I know what you're planning to do to me. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says, so what's going to happen to those tenants? You think the owner's going to let him get away with that? No. He's going to come and kill those owners and give the vineyard to someone else. Well, 70 AD was the fulfillment of that prophecy that Jesus made in that parable. What happened was in 68 or so AD, the Roman zealots succeeded in, in pushing the Romans out of Jerusalem and taking control of the city. And they not only did that, but they, they deposed the high priest who was installed by the Romans. He served at the Romans' pleasure. They got rid of the high priest and they installed one of their own people in his place. And this guy was a total clown. He invited all of the zealots to come into the temple courts and go right into the Holy of Holies, which was absolutely forbidden. So the zealots themselves desecrated the temple. Now, when that happened... Christians who were still living in Jerusalem saw this as the, the abomination that causes desolation, and they literally fled. They got out of town. They fled across the Jordan River. They went into the, the hills of, across the, the, the Jordan, and there they found the little town of Pella, and that's where they, they hung out and found safety just in time because then the Romans came back with a vengeance under the Roman general Titus, and Titus absolutely leveled the city. He destroyed the temple in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in verse 2. Not one stone to be left upon another. And there Titus in the temple courts raised the Roman standards and, uh, and sacrificed offerings to, to pagan gods, utterly desecrating the temple, just as Jesus said and as Daniel had prophesied. But the events of 167 BC and 70 AD foreshadow, it seems, a greater and final fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, one that would take place just prior to his second coming. Because he says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolations standing where he does not belong, flee to the mountains. This is apparently a reference to the end time person of the Antichrist, spoken of in Daniel 7, Daniel 9, and Revelation 13 where we learn in those passages that this, 
This end times ruler will make a covenant with the Jewish people, allowing them to offer sacrifices at the temple. And, and at the mid, in the midpoint of that agreement, he will break his agreement with the Jews and stop the temple sacrifices, desecrate the temple by setting himself up there as God and demanding that he be worshipped. He will launch an intensive persecution of those who refuse to worship him and terrible end times events of the great tribulation will follow, which is what Jesus talks about in verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. There will never be a time as bad as this in the history of the world. You think it's crazy now? It's going to be really crazy then. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, in fact, the book of Revelation says it's going to be 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, and, and the Lord's going to say, enough. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And, if any, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For sure, in the tribulation time, you don't want to believe anyone who says he's the Christ. That's the Antichrist's MO. He's going to claim to be the Christ. He's going to be the ultimate imposter claiming to be the Christ. And he'll be assisted by one the book of Revelation calls the, the false prophet, sort of a chief spokesman, a, a, an imposter Holy Spirit, who will try to persuade the masses to follow the Antichrist. And Jesus says in verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. Now we don't have time to go into whether we, the church, will be there when all this goes down or not, or whether the rapture will happen before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. There are good arguments to be made on all sides for that. Jesus doesn't address any of that here. What we do know from what Jesus says is that there will at least be some followers of Jesus during the tribulation who will be persecuted by the Antichrist. And I believe there's going to be a huge missionary movement continuing during the tribulation period that is especially uh, targeted at, at the Jewish nation. And Jesus says, when you see someone standing in the temple, believer of mine, claiming to be the Christ, don't stick around. Get out of town because all kinds of bad stuff is about to go down. So Jesus' disciples wanted to know how they would know the end was upon them, what the sign was they should look for. And Jesus says, look, there's a lot to come before all of that. Don't mistake the normal stuff and think that means that you're in the end. Expect false Christ, but don't be led astray. Expect catastrophes, but don't be alarmed. Expect persecution, but don't be anxious and then he says, okay, now here's the one thing that's sure, the sure sign that the end is near. It's when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and expects to be worshipped. That's when followers of Jesus would do well to get out of town. Expect tribulation, but don't stick around. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. Because next week, as we complete chapter 13... We'll see how Jesus goes on to talk about his second coming. If there were to be a, a fifth expectation in this chapter, it would be expect my return and do not be afraid. So stay tuned. The best is yet to come. Let's pray.
Father, these are indeed crazy times that we're living in. And yeah, we're prone to be anxious and alarmed and afraid and all those things that Jesus talked about. Lord, help us in the midst of these very strange times we're living in. Not to be afraid, but to trust in you. And not to be anxious, not to be alarmed, but to live our lives in hopeful expectation that, that you, Lord Jesus, are coming again. And when you do, you're going to set all things right and make all things new. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us be faithful to our calling as believers in Christ. That not to live in a state of alarm and, and, and raising an alarm and making others all crazy with our predictions, but Lord, I pray, help us rather to live in expectation for the Lord's return and to live in such a way as to continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes again. Because we want as many people to join us in glory as possible. So Lord, thank you for, for these words of scripture for how they prepare us for what's to come and help us to live in joyful expectation of Jesus' return, who is indeed our way maker, our promise keeper, our Messiah, our Lord who's coming again. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.